from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. This is Gaila Molinar at the Library of Congress. For the past 10 years, book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the written word at the Library of Congress National Book Festival. The 2011 festival, our 11th, which is free and open to the public, runs for two days this year, Saturday, September 24th, and Sunday, September 25th. The festival will take place between 9th and 14th Streets on the National Mall, rain or shine. Hours are 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Saturday the 24th and 1 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. on Sunday the 25th. For more details, visit loc.gov bookfest. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Adam Goodhart, whose latest book, 1861, The Civil War Awakening, has been published by Alfred A. Knopf. Adam is a historian, journalist, and travel writer, and is the director of the Washington College CV Star Center for the study of the American experience. Goodhart's book received a rave review and a cover story in the New York Times Book Review, which said that of the deluge of Civil War books that are likely to be published, marking the war's 150th anniversary, few will be as exhilarating as 1861. Adam Goodhart, thank you so much for joining us. Guy, thanks for having me. In 1995, a bibliographer had estimated, even back then, that more than 50,000 books had already been written about the Civil War. What made you think there was still more to be told, and why did you focus on the year 1861? Well, you know, it's a little bit daunting um, to set out and send one's own book into that fray of other books that are out there. As you say, there's been actually um, more than one book published on the Civil War for every day since the surrender at Appomattox. So it's, uh, it's, as I said, a, a little bit daunting. But, you know, I really believe that um, with these great stories in history, like the, the great human stories in, in general, um, they can be told and retold and examined afresh for each new generation. Each, each new generation of Americans finds new meaning in, in a story like the Civil War. And in particular, I felt like so many of those 50,000 books um, focused on sort of whose cavalry went charging over which hill at the Battle of, of Antietam, books that treat the Civil War as, as what one writer has called America's great 19th century Super Bowl. Mm. And those are the details that, that quite frankly, um, always make my eyes glaze over a little bit. The kind of history that I like to write is um, the history of what was really going on in people's hearts and minds at a, at a moment. What was it like to be alive at that particular juncture in, in American history when everything was up for grabs and the only certainty was uncertainty. So um, that's part of the reason. Another reason is that I actually made a discovery with my students um, just as I was about to set out and write this book. I made a discovery with my students from Washington College um, out on the eastern shore of Maryland where our college is um, in an old plantation house. We found a bundle of letters that went back to the spring of 1861 up in the attic of this old house, although it sounds like one of those too-good-to-be-true stories <laughs> that actually um, did happen. We, we undid this bundle of letters and found in it a remarkable story of a man who was an officer in the Army at that moment trying to choose his loyalties. So uh, all those things sort of conspired, came together to encourage me to write the book. That brings up a good question. You know, one thing I thought that was so interesting about your book was that you really didn't focus on the most famous people of the war, but you focused on people that 
in many cases we know little, if anything, about today. Um, why did you do that? Well, you know, again, I think uh, I was I was trying to make it fresh, and I also I, I tend to approach history um, coming out of a journalism background, as as you know, I approach history sort of as a journalist. What a journalist does when he starts working on a story is he goes to a place, um, he walks around, he keeps his eyes open, he keeps his ears open, and he finds the people who seem most interesting, and he finds the, the, the storylines that seem most revealing, and then he just follows them wherever they'll lead. So that's sort of how I approach this book. I, I set out to immerse myself in this particular moment in time, 1861, and I just started reading around. I started listening to the voices from that time, and the voices that I found most compelling, I said, there's a story here, and I'm going to follow this person, follow this thread wherever it leads. And um, in some cases, of course, I ended up um, writing a good bit about Abraham Lincoln, and I hope giving a, a somewhat new version of Lincoln from the one that's um, often been told in the past. My Lincoln is a Lincoln who bumbles and stumbles his way through the presidency <laughs> at first before finding his footing. But I also, um, as you say, ended up engaging with some little-known characters, and those, to me, ended up really being some of the most um, fascinating figures, uh, to me at least, and I hope to readers as well, as, as I wrote the book. One of those was Elmer Ellsworth. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Elmer Ellsworth, he's one of those characters who usually gets um, a couple of sentences in the typical big history of the Civil War. Um, he was a very close friend of Abraham Lincoln's, who was also one of the very first Union soldiers, the very first Union officer to be killed in the war. Um, he died uh, almost literally minutes into the Union invasion of, of Virginia, incursion into Virginia. And Ellsworth um, was a, a sort of a remarkable figure in American popular culture even before the war began. He started a movement um, known as the Zouave Movement, and the Zouaves were these special um, troops patterned after French Algerian soldiers um, who wore big, baggy, sort of harem-style pants and wore little fezes on their heads when they marched off into battle. And uh, Ellsworth had become fascinated uh, a couple of years before the war with this style of soldiering, which involved um, not just these funny costumes, but a lot of sort of gymnastic back-flipping and, and bayonet twirling. I call them sort of a cross between uh, Seal Team 6 and the Cirque du Soleil. They were these uh, wonderfully gymnastic special forces type soldiers. And so Ellsworth had created a, a special corps of these troops that toured the United States the summer before the Civil War began, performing to crowds of tens of thousands of people. They performed on the lawn of the White House before President Buchanan, and they became these sort of national stars and, and sex symbols. And then Ellsworth um, became close friends with, with Lincoln, almost a member of the Lincoln family, accompanied the Lincolns to Washington. And when the Union troops uh, crossed over into Virginia, he and a special regiment of Zouaves were among the first troops to cross over. They were actually Zouaves he had recruited from the ranks of the New York City Fire Department. And he was killed, I won't give the story away, but he was killed very suddenly, very uh, tragically and, and dramatically um, in a sort of a, a, a point-blank double homicide almost in the very first moments of the war. And one of the things that, that fascinated me is, first of all, the exuberant um, and colorful uh, figure of Ellsworth himself, extraordinarily charismatic 
strange little man, quite frankly. <laughs> but uh, also the effect that this had on, on Abraham Lincoln. You, you know, in the years to come, over 600,000 Americans would, would die. There wouldn't be a single family or household in America untouched by that tragedy of the war very directly. And the Lincoln family, the Lincoln household, was one of the very first families to be touched personally by, by the loss of the Civil War. And I think that's something that's very significant that hasn't really been uh, written about enough. You also focus on smaller decisions and how they really had such a profound impact on the course of the war. Can you tell us a little about some of those small decisions and what was their cumulative effect? Yeah, well, it, you know, there are so many things that at a juncture in American history, like 1861, when, when so many things are up for grabs, when uh, history is changing, history is being made very, very quickly, um, sometimes little decisions have a way of amplifying themselves until they can bring about enormous changes. And one of these is the story of the freeing of the very first slaves in the Civil War. And uh, this is a story that uh, I think is, is not known either. A lot of people have the image of Lincoln waving his pen and freeing the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation a year and a half into the war. But in fact, that process really began in the very first weeks of the war in early 1861 at a place called Fort Monroe, Virginia, where the commander, General Benjamin Butler, was presented with a, a dilemma when three young African-Americans, escaped slaves, made their way into the Union lines, presented themselves at this fort as fugitives, and he had to decide what to do with them. It was a big dilemma for, for Butler because, of course, Lincoln had stated in his inaugural address that this is not a war to end slavery. Um, this is not a war to disturb, as he called it, the domestic institutions of the South, wherever they exist. It's simply a war to restore the Union, and we will enforce the fugitive slave codes, federal fugitive slave codes, wherever um, they need to be enforced. Well, but here is Butler, isolated in a lonely fort in the middle of Confederate territory, looking at these three men who had been used until recently um, to help construct Confederate fortifications. They've been put to work um, constructing earthworks. And he thought, how can I send these men back and send them back to work um, for, the, for the enemy, send them back to help the Confederate cause. And so the dilemma wasn't as clear in that moment as um, it perhaps should have been, according to Lincoln administration policy for Butler. And the decision that he ended up making was one that caused vast repercussions and uh, really, as I, as I tell the story in the book, um, I believe did more to bring about the end of slavery even than Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation did the following year. Okay. Um, when I went to school, and probably you did too, we always learned about Fort Sumter, and that was described as the beginning of the war. But one thing we never were told, which you uh, proclaim in your book, is that it was the Confederacy's biggest blunder. Why do you say that? Well, it's usually presented as a Confederate victory. After all, um, they did manage to dislodge the Union force that had been holding Fort Sumter in the very center of Charleston Harbor, the epicenter of secession. Um, for the past six months. Um, but on the other hand, um, in winning that little two-acre pile of rocks with a fort on it, I really believe that they may have lost the war because what they did in being the first to open fire on the North was they created what I call America's first 
9-11 moment or America's first Pearl Harbor moment, one of those moments when the country comes under attack and suddenly all previous political divisions within the North are, are at least momentarily suspended um, in this sort of flash of, of shock and outrage and desire for vengeance. And that's exactly what happened. The North had been very divided over whether or not to take up arms against the South, whether to compromise, whether to let the South simply secede. And when they saw the American flag being fired upon by rebels, by an overwhelming force of rebels attacking a tiny force of, of U.S. Army troops, suddenly everything changed. And people almost simultaneously across the country, thanks to the new invention of the telegraph, experienced this, this national trauma and rallied around the stars and stripes and decided to fight. So in that moment, I think that um, while Jefferson Davis probably thought that he was gaining a victory, um, he may have lost the South's best chance for independence. Mm. Okay. Would you say there's an incident uh, that would be the North's biggest blunder, and did it somehow prolong the war? Well, I don't think that perhaps there's one incident um, similar to that that would be the North's biggest blunder, although I, I do think that um, it was a big mistake, and Lincoln has to bear some of the responsibility for this. It was a big, it was a big mistake not to start to mobilize more quickly. Um, and, you know, Lincoln only called up 75,000 troops after Fort Sumter. He only accepted 75,000 enlistees at a point when he could have gotten um, certainly a million, if not, if not more, volunteers. That's how riled up the people of the North were at that moment. And he decided to honor the, the, uh, the law that, uh, that said he could only call up uh, 75,000 in case of emergency. And the South, meanwhile, um, had already done much more to mobilize, and so the Union wasn't able to strike the kind of early decisive blow that many in the North um, felt that it should be able to strike. Um, so I think that was definitely something that held the North back. Sort of like Colin Powell's theory about overwhelming, using overwhelming force right at the very beginning. Exactly. Yeah, I think Colin Powell probably would have done things differently. Mm -hmm. Although, <laughs> in fairness to Lincoln, it is um, a little bit hard to see what, what he could have done differently, because this was a point we tend to forget in American history when the federal government was so tiny before the Civil War began. The entire um, army was only about 17,000 officers mm -hmm. and men scattered mostly in frontier forts throughout the West. The entire War Department bureaucracy was fewer than 100 employees, and so suddenly this tiny bureaucracy, this tiny federal government had to, had to deal with managing a vast war effort. And um, to say the least, it wasn't equipped for that. It, it literally didn't have the, uh, the equipment, the, the guns and the swords and the uniforms to offer these, um, these enlistees. So um, to be fair, it, it's understandable that it took them a little while to mobilize. Right. I know you did a lot of your research here at the Library of Congress. Can you tell us about some of the most surprising discoveries you made here? Yes, well, I, I really I wrote about 99% of the book um, sitting in desk number 12 in the main reading room <laughs> of the Library of Congress. The staff there were so great that after a while they just knew that I wanted that desk, and if I came in a little <laughs> bit late in the morning, they would put a stack of books on it to reserve it for me. It was it was very it was very nice, but um, they're just surprising and amazing things that you can find in the Library of Congress collection and. Um, one of these was I was in the, the manuscript division one day, and I was going through 
the papers of Major Robert Anderson, who was the Union commander at Fort Sumter uh, when it came under attack by the by the rebels. And there was a very elegant sheet of this sort of lavender blue note paper, and it had been um, handed to Anderson um, late at night on the on the uh, night of April 12, 1861, by two aides to Major General Beauregard of the Confederate forces besieging Fort Sumter, and written in this very elegant hand on the note paper, uh, it said, Fort Sumter, 3.20 a.m., April 12, 1861. Dear sir, on behalf of Major General Beauregard, commanding provisional Confederate forces, we have the honor to inform you that the firing on your positions will commence in exactly one hour. We have the honor to remain, sir, et cetera, et cetera, your obedient servants, and it was signed by these two aides. And you could see where the paper had been folded up when it was handed over to Beauregard, to um, Anderson, presumably. And I was holding this thing and, and just thinking, here is the piece of paper that started the Civil War. This right. is the piece of paper that announced when the first Confederate shot was going to be fired. And there it was um, in the Library of Congress. I had filled out a call slip, and they had brought it to me. And um, it's just one of the great privileges and, mm. and thrills of working there. Thank you. Um, we've been hearing from Adam Goodhart, author of 1861, The Civil War Awakening. Adam will appear Sunday, September 25th in the History and Biography Pavilion of the National Book Festival. He will also be signing copies of his book this day. Adam Goodhart, thank you very much for your time, and we look forward to seeing you at the National Book Festival. Thanks, Guy. I'm looking forward to it very much. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.